this for the second episode of our new fortnightly podcast titled IIEA Insights. I'm Dan O'Brien, the Institute's Chief Economist. Each episode of the podcast will feature an interview conducted by either myself or David O'Sullivan, the Institute's Director General. I'm delighted to be hosting my first episode of the podcast today, where I'll be speaking to Sir Ivan Rogers, a former senior British civil servant and diplomat, and in my view, one of the most penetrating analysts anywhere of European affairs. We'll cover the Conservative leadership race, the fate of the Northern Ireland Protocol, among other things. But in an effort to see through the fog of current events, we start on how EU-UK relations might evolve in the medium term, and specifically how things might change if the British Labour Party were to come out on top at the next general election scheduled for the middle of the decade. Objectivity and predictive accuracy tend to correlate. Over the course of the saga since British voters decided to quit Europe's most important political and economic framework, Sir Ivan Rogers has analysed and predicted the dynamics that bedevil EU-UK relationships better than anyone. The future of the relationship, which he describes now as a frozen conflict, is the subject of our discussion today. By way of informal introduction, Ivan is a former British civil servant and diplomat who knows his own country and the EU intimately. His willingness to critique the positions of both sides throughout this time of fragmentation has been both valuable and necessary. It has been particularly valuable here in Ireland where there has been a tendency to attribute every problem on every occasion to the British side and often portray ourselves and the EU as being on the side of the angels. There has also been an unwillingness to acknowledge, perhaps understandably, at this delicate juncture, the underestimation of the costs and risks associated with taking Northern Ireland out of the UK goods market. We'll try to cover as many of those issues as possible today uh, in this uh, fro our frozen conflict, as Ivan calls it. Let's start with the British Labour Party. Uh, just last week, it declared that if in government, it would not rejoin the EU, the single market of customs union. How do you think EU-UK re relations might evolve if the party wins the, the next uh, British general election, whenever that might be? Well, thanks very much, Dan. First of all, thanks for inviting me and thanks for those very kind words of introduction. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and or, or at least it's not unfair uh, to say that Keir Starmer's speech was pretty light on substance and policy content. I think that was deliberate. It was an act of positioning. You've seen a similar act of positioning on the Scottish independence saga. Um, essentially, I think he's politically just trying to close issues down, which he sees as likely attack lines, obviously at the time by uh, Boris Johnson, but by any putative uh, Conservative successor. So let's be honest, that whichever Tory leader you get um, Brexit and refighting sort of Brexit wars and keeping the Brexit coalition together, red wall and blue wall, will be central to whichever Conservative leader you get. Now, what would happen in the event that Starmer won? You would hope that by then they had more of a kind of policy agenda and more of a substantive agenda. I suppose my concern and reading the speech, but I mean, I haven't, I haven't talked to these guys. I've seen a number of Labour people over the last few years, but I haven't talked to him or others recently. My concern is there's a sort of slight element of a different form of cherry picking um, in the speech. Uh, I can see why they won't rejoin the single market, the customs union, and I've said so myself. I don't think either is a viable political option. I don't think there'd be any interest in the other side anyway. The danger is we get into a sort of quasi-Swiss relationship where you know the Brits, under a different government, pick a range of things on which they would want uh, to make some progress and want to put a package deal together and we get into a Swiss type negotiation and given what you could see going on at the moment between the EU and Switzerland that gives one slight cause for concern on the other hand I mean the first thing to do I think for any Labour government uh, being very realistic in 2024 2025 would be to try and stabilize the relationship take some of the toxins uh, out of it start a more normal relationship on foreign policy uh, in particular and then try and build from there, maybe pick a few issues where you think you can make a degree of progress and there might be appetite from the other side to op open a negotiation where you can imagine that the Commission might get a negotiating mandate from very sceptical member states. Um, let, let's turn obviously to the, the, the topic du jour, the Conservative leadership race. Um, do you think there's any prospect that, that, that a new leader could pull back on the protocol bill? either by not working hard to push it through Parliament or not using its power as once enacted? I think it looks pretty implausible. Now, I think we have to aim off a little bit for what people say in the leadership election. Um, 
I didn't expect any leadership election to make matters better. They usually make matters worse. Um, I've lived through multiple Tory and Labour leadership elections, uh, and those, particularly when governments are in office, don't usually um, end up with anything other than radicalisation. Even look at the one which David Cameron won against expectations against David Davis. Cameron won it partly by promising to take the Conservative Party out of the European People's Party, which was you know, arguably one of the steps that led to the beginning of the end. So radicalisation takes place in leadership campaigns. You're already seeing Suella Braverman talking about the need to exit the ECHR. Uh, others are dabbling in that space. Everybody is committing to the passage of the Northern Ireland bill. Uh, there won't be a single candidate who will differentiate on that for the simple reason that if they differentiated on that, they haven't got a cat in hell's chance of winning the leadership. Now, that doesn't mean to say that everybody would do the same thing if they took office on September the 5th. Um, so do I think it's uh, an identical issue for the European Commission or for the Council if it's Liz Truss or if it's Rishi Sunak or Penny Borden? No, not necessarily. Um, I think the difficulty, and you'll want to come on to this, I'm sure, in terms of what the Commission and how the 27 should react, the difficulty will be, I think it's unimaginable that any Tory Prime Minister taking office on September the 5th is going to say, I'm pulling the plug or pausing this bill. They may have different levels of enthusiasm about the speed at which it goes forward, but I think they're bound to recommit uh, to it going forward and to passing in both houses. All of them will make a merit of having a gun on the table in negotiations with the European Commission, even if they want those negotiations. And of course, that's difficult for the other side, particularly the Council, let alone the Commission, I think, in terms of, you know, well, do you even bother to negotiate um, a, with a negotiating partner who's deliberately put a loaded gun on the table? So I think that's massively difficult to handle. We can come on to the question of how do you try and handle it, but you've got a very short window between the election of a Conservative leader, if that's by September the 5th, and the Conservative Party conference at the end of the month, during which you would have to try and make some procedural progress at least, and set in, set in train some sort of process which gave you a chance of getting to a negotiated solution. Personally, I think under any leader, it's odds against a negotiated solution. I have to be honest and pessimistic, but I think there are better chances uh, with some than with others, and there might be more appetite with some than with others. And, and, and no doubt the, um, the, the team dealing with this in Brussels is, is watching it very closely. In terms of how you think the Commission should respond um, to the passage to a new, new Prime Minister and the passage of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, um, what would you, what, what do you think or what would you recommend, what do you think and what do you recommend uh, the, the Commission might do in response? Well, you know, I, I, I speak with due humility and modesty because it's nothing to do with me. Um, uh, and, you know, they'll, ha they'll have their own views as to how to handle an incoming Prime Minister. I do think at leader level, you have to have a go. I mean, relationship, we have to be honest, the relationship is awful at the moment. There's no trust at all. The trust has been completely burned by Johnson, although we could come back to the Ukraine and Russia question, because I think some degree of cooperation on Russia, Ukraine in the G7 and G7 plus format has worked better than one might have expected. And at least people have seen that the UK MOD uh, in particular has played a pretty responsible and forward leaning role, I think, on the Ukraine crisis. And although people might dislike the grandstanding from Johnson Trust and others, uh, they think Britain's played a pretty valuable role in the security agenda, and they're gratified to see that the UK still cares about the eastern frontier and still regards security as a... So I would make that caveat, but, I mean, the relationship with Johnson is absolutely awful with the EU institutions, and in a sense, that's what he wanted. I think there's no trust left. The more disconcerting thing is, obviously, I think people expected the relationship with Liz Trust to be better than that with David Frost, and it appeared to start off in that direction. Um, I've heard radically different accounts from the two sides about what's happened over the last three or four months, but obviously that relationship has gone pear-shaped as well, and there's no trust at either end. So it's difficult to be terribly optimistic um, uh, about a relationship with Liz Truss in number 10. I nevertheless think that people do behave differently as leaders from um, ministerial posts, even foreign secretary or chancellor posts, and I think you have to try. Um, and I think you have to try early. And I think Ursula von der Leyen in particular would have to try early. Um, no doubt she could invite them to Brussels and I'm pretty clear for the obvious optical political reasons before a party conference, uh, she wouldn't get them to come to Brussels. So I think she has to invite herself to London. I think she should or Czechos or whatever. 
I think then you have to have, you know, a pretty blunt one-on-one -on -one discussion. I mean, not blunt in the sense that you don't want to start with all the aggro. You want to start with, you know, the potential love uh, and the potential harmony and the reason geostrategically why we have to be together and why there's a severe risk that if we're not together and we allow a trade war to break out in the next two years, this is a very bad thing for the Western world. So I think you start with Ukraine and Russia and energy security and multiple other things. I think you have to have a talk Turkey discussion, though, before the Conservative Party conference um, of the Northern Ireland Protocol and where we can get and whether there is any serious appetite in London to do anything other than go completely unilateral. And if so, what does that look like? Where would we need to get? What sort of process would we need to get? And how they're not going to withdraw the bill, but how do you put the bill effectively on the ice or slow it up? such that there is genuine space for a negotiation without the 27 basically saying that we're negotiating under the threat of a gun that's been put on the table. So interesting that you see that the, 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 the Tory party conference at the end of September as being a timeline. So it's actually quite... I think we have a very narrow window to make any progress if there's a chance of making progress. And I'm, I'm not convinced there's a great chance, I'm not wildly optimistic. I think you have to have a go. And I think it's worth trying to build a personal relationship that works because personal relationships between leaders um, can make a difference. And the erosion of trust with Johnson has been so great that I think you, you need to see whether you can make a fresh start and see whether you can frame the relationship differently uh, and see whether there's appetite at the British end to try and do things differently in the next couple of years. And I, I suppose that brings me back to a sort of more basic point, which I suppose I've asked every uh, British speaker over time, you know, what is the domestic political calculus behind this? You know, the average British voter surely does not, is not too interested in something like the Northern Ireland Protocol. So how is it politically beneficial for uh, a British leader to be at such, you know, in, have such bad relations with, with, with a near neighbour? Do, does that actually, you know, is there domestic political gain? Well, to date, they've obviously thought so, and that's applied, you know, both to the Prime Minister and unsurprisingly, I think, to Johnson, given, you know, his role in winning the referendum and bringing down Theresa May. But perhaps a little bit more surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, really, to Liz Truss, who, let's be honest, probably has thought over the last three to five months that she needed to position herself in the right place for any potential leadership campaign and to be the candidate of the right and the ERG in that leadership campaign. And that's clearly what she's trying to do. So is there a, a dividend within the party? Clearly, yes. And they've all thought that, uh, which is you shore up your support with the ERG and beyond the ERG, and that's your base. And those people are better organised and more reliable than the kind of one nation conservatives. By and large, the story of my you know professional lifetime has been... And I've heard people like Ken Clark say that, you know, recently has been that the right of the party and has been better organised, uh, more, more meticulously organised, more determined and has dictated the battles in the Conservative Party over the last 25 years. So nothing new there. And if you're a prime minister, you need those people behind you. Otherwise, they're so sooner or later going to stab you in the back. So I think on the party politics, it's pretty obvious that there is a dividend from positioning yourself where Liz Truss has done in recent months. In the country... You know, interesting signs, really. I think the you're seeing more of a backlash against Brexit, um, partly because Brexit is being is perceived now to be going badly. In a way, it's rather ironic that quite a lot of things are now being attributed to Brexit, which may not be fully Brexit. So in a sense, they're suffering the reverse of the uh, effects they benefited from at the time of the referendum and since. And uh, you know, this is actually going badly. And the figures are suggesting that. So there is a risk for the Conservatives that they're getting a bit of out, out of line or with public opinion and getting a bit obsessive about refighting Brexit wars. On the other hand, everything I've heard from Labour circles to your, you know, to the first question is a lot of Labour nervousness about fighting the next general election campaign on anything to do with Brexit. And a lot of belief that the Conservatives will keep on cycling back to the Brexit question, because that's the one thing that brought them all together and brought this current coalition together. And that's why I predicted, uh, you know, a couple of, you know, not, I wasn't alone in predicting it, you know, a couple of weeks ago in a New Statesman piece I wrote about, you know, they'd moved the revolution onto the ECHR. It doesn't surprise me they're, at, they're now starting to look at ECHR exit because there's a sort of bicycle theory of disintegration as well, if I can put it like that. You know, if you don't roll the revolution on, there's the danger that the counter-revolutionaries uh, take over. Now, 
Keir Starmer, as, as we discussed, is trying to kill the idea that there are counter-revolutionaries. You know, the counter-revolution accepts that the revolution has happened and doesn't wish to reverse it. But of course, the conservative agenda over the next couple of years will be to say, yeah, well, he would say that, but in office, he would do the exact opposite and he would try and harmonize and align us with the European Union because he's not a true patriot and he doesn't believe in divergence and he really wants to rejoin by the back door. So they're still going to play that against him. And the question for him with that speech is, has he done enough to avoid that? But I think that's the dynamics, I'm afraid. And therefore, even if we think they might be a bit out of line with where the general public is increasingly getting on the real world impact of Brexit, I think they will carry on using Brexit as a stick with which to try and beat the opposition parties over the next couple of years. Yeah. So, OK, on the subject of dynamics, well, maybe I'm clutching at straws, but uh, maybe maybe in, in terms of the trade relationship between the EU, EU and UK, I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, trade war has been used a lot. You used, you used it yourself. I've used it in the past. But I, I, I'm wondering, is it possible that because there's not necessarily a tit for tat dynamic in this, so the EU retaliates, does the UK have a motive, have a motive then to counter retaliate? And get into a tit for tat dynamic. One could make the case that they don't. They they breach the protocol. The EU responds, and it settles at a you know a bad but somewhat more stable equilibrium, at least for EU UK trade. Obviously, the issues from Northern Ireland are, are are major. But you know, is it possible to say that maybe a trade war is too negative uh, an outcome on that? absence of a tit-for-tat dynamic may, is, may give us some reason for hope? Yeah, I mean, the difficulty is you have to look strong, don't you? So the, dif the difficulty is if, if you fail to react to something which is pretty strong coming from the Commission. I think the first thing to say is I think there are probably a lot of people at ministerial level, senior ministerial level, perhaps senior official level, who don't think that the EU is capable of reaching unanimity to take severe retaliatory action against the UK anyway. I think this is a miscalculation. Uh, I may be proven right or wrong. Um, I think you would get unanimity. I'm not incidentally totally sure you need unanimity anyway, but it obviously helps to have it, um, particularly if it ever goes up to leader level and it looks to be escalating. But I think the first thing is the calculation that they can't really do anything to us which is that damaging. Now, of course, the frozen conflict thing you alluded to is things like Horizon 2020, which in my view, that's already gone, gone out of the window. Uh, you know, the Lugano Convention, the Financial Services Memorandum of Understanding, lots of stuff on energy. Um, I think that's very easily brushed off at the prime ministerial level. And that's certainly where Johnson was backed by the frost view of the world, which is we don't care. Now, I think that's cavalier and irresponsible. I mean, there are lots of people I know in universities and research and science who care and who think not being in Horizon 2020 uh, matters a lot to them. I think that's gone, though. Um, and I think it suits those who want a hardest possible Brexit to say, well, there's another rupture there and we develop our own programme in the way they have done on Erasmus. We put our own science programme in, which will be better than Horizon 2020. We don't have to be bothered with these ridiculous Europeans. But my point is, the difficulty then is if you just brush everything off and London brushes it off and says there's nothing these guys could do to us via, via retaliation in frozen conflict or via tariff action, which makes a heap of a difference to us. Of course, that then does invite the other side to think, right, well, we better do something that does make a difference to them. And we better find a way to concentrate their minds and therefore hit them very hard in specific sectors which would damage them in the Red Wall, for example. So what do I think the Commission will be thinking about in DG Trade or in the SecGen? I think they'd be thinking of specific targeted actions which were really quite damaging to the UK economy and which might change the debate. Um, those are, of course, you know, you all know better than I do on the uh, European side of the table. They're never very easy to achieve unanimity on either, because the moment you take targeted retaliation, by definition, there's a kind of geographical balance has to be struck on the EU 27 side of the table. And those who are not taking much of the pain from the targeted retaliation uh, you know, may be fine, but others think, well, we're disproportionately badly hit by it. So it's always difficult. Um, I think the UK Prime Minister, though, faced with retaliation which hit, you know, cars or steel or salmon or whiskey or whatever, would have to retaliate and say, OK, well, you're hitting us there and, you know, here's our retaliatory 
action. So I think it's difficult to avoid a tit for tat because otherwise the prime minister looks passive um, and is criticised for the party for just taking it on the chin and not doing anything about it. Now, you're right, they could say, well, I don't, we don't care. None of this matters to us. We're doing what we want in Northern Ireland because it's the right thing to do and we're the ones protecting the Good Friday Agreement and the peace settlement, uh, not the ghastly Europeans who are trying to pull it down. You could play that, but it might not look strong enough to your own base. So there is a real risk, I think, of this being a sort of escalatory spiral through 2023. It obviously hinges on how does the EU look at the passage of the bill? Let's assume the bill does trundle on. It'll obviously hit problems in the Lords. The obvious risk in the Lords is that any incoming Prime Minister will then represent the Lords as the enemies of the people, standing in the way of the will of the people. We're doing what's necessary to anchor peace in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement, and it's their Lordships and the peers who don't get it, who are weakening Britain's negotiating hand in trying to undermine us, etc. We live that, we live that film in 2019. We could have that film again over the winter of 2022. If we get there, of course, there's going to be a temptation on the European side to, to say, okay, as and when this bill passes various stages, even before it reaches royal assent, we'll have to hit them between the eyes. And we might specifically have to threaten the UK Prime Minister that if it gets royal assent and gets implemented, you know, there'll be specific retaliatory action, which you name in advance. So, I mean, that's the dynamic that worries me. Now, in a way, of course, you want to play forward this development. One of the things, as you know, Dan, has exasperated me over the last several years is people never think further than the next weekend's headlines. In a way, you have to play all this forward on both sides of the table and to have a bit of a mature conversation about where this could end up, because you have to look into the abyss before both sides might want to avoid the abyss. Um, but there is a real danger that we sort of topple into the abyss because nobody really wants to think nine to 12 months ahead about where could we be this time next year if everything goes badly. So looking into that abyss, you know, if you feel as you clearly do that, that the UK could then take countermeasures and including tariffs. So, you know, our members who, who sell into the UK, um, it's clearly a non-negligible risk that they'll face tariffs into the UK market if this if this gets out of control. Um, so, what, what is the, what is the absolute worst case scenario that the uh, the deals are are are, are abandoned? Both sides yeah. impose Termina tariffs termination on termination of the TCA because I mean the logic after all, and I've certainly heard this from German sources, and this German government is even tougher than the last German government. If you sort of listen to them in Berlin, not not I would hasten to add that. It struck me as in their top 50 issues in Berlin. I mean, I don't think they care very much, but they're very hardline on the integrity of the single market. They're very hardline in a kind of pro-Dublin position. They're also very hardline on this is an obvious and flagrant breach of international law and we're not having it. Um, I think the risk is that in the end, people think, well, if they've deliberately subverted the Northern Ireland Protocol and pulled it down and implemented uh, you know, a version which bears no relation to what we uh, signed and ratified and agreed. It was a package with the trade and cooperation agreement. So why don't we terminate the benefits of the trade and cooperation? Agreement? Um, now, you know, I'm sure the Brits are sitting there, frankly, thinking, you know, but there'll be a lot of opposition to that internally. People won't really want to get there. Uh, you've got enough other economic problems and we're all heading into recession. You've got the energy security crisis and therefore we're sitting prettily. We're quite popular with the Poles and with the Balts. So there'll be people in, um, in Brussels uh, and in capitals who don't want to go there. I think that's a bit delusional. I mean, I, I, that's not the way I read things. I do think the UK constantly thinks it can divide and rule and go bilaterally and chip away at European solidarity. They're nearly always wrong. And actually, I think there are relatively few actors, either at ministerial or official level, who really matter in this. And if in the end, the consensus starts to build amongst those few actors that the UK is simply, you know, completely off the reservation and has done what it's done on the Northern Ireland Protocol, and it's done that with a view to forcing the EU to have to erect barriers to Irish goods entering the 26. And basically it's the UK putting two fingers up and saying, it's your problem now. We're not erecting a border in the Irish Sea. It's up to you whether you want to erect a border. That will be perceived, I think, amongst the people who count as a seriously hostile act. 
And if they perceive it as a seriously hostile act, then the obviously the end of the road is to say, OK, well, if that's how you're behaving on the Northern Ireland Protocol and pulling it down, that's the end of the trade and cooperation agreement. Because the timing, look, that takes nine or 12 months to come into effect. It's not straightforward to do, but there is a mechanism to do it. You don't have to justify it. It's not sort of justiciable. Of course, the attraction from the EU side, much as I think people don't really want to do that, the attraction would be if you pulled that trigger at the time of royal assent or near it, say, in the summer of 2023, um, the, bene the benefits of the trade and cooperation deal would terminate just before a UK general election. So, you know, it's a good way to concentrate London's mind and turn it into a, bre turn it into a Brexit election in a way that they might think worked quite well for the EU of, OK, so we're pulling all this off the table then. You haven't got anything you want on tariffs, quotas, or anything else. Dynamite stuff. I hope, yeah, we, don't it is. I, I hope we don't get there. Obviously, profoundly don't want to get there. I don't think others want to get there. But the trouble is, if you don't think ahead to where you could get, you can gradually stumble towards a point where that becomes a rather inexorable process. And on the on the path to that, I suppose, is, is, is of course, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you, do you see... You know, it's such a binary issue, and it's so you know so difficult to 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 resolve these binary issues. But do you see a landing zone? Um, it's terribly difficult to know because it obviously depends on what do the UK authorities ultimately want, and what do the DUP right. and others on the um, uh, unionist side of Northern Ireland politics want. Now, as you said in your introduction, there is a real problem. So I think some of the Commission's rhetoric about, you know, you're in the best of both worlds and you're in our single market as well as uh, the UK single market and you'll benefit from this and look at your growth figures and they're better than English regions and therefore you're, you're in a kind of nirvana. I sort of get that. There are, of course, real beneficiaries in the Northern Ireland economy from having the protocol. Um, uh, but I think that's a bit sort of naive because that's not what counts to the unionists. And there is a real problem on East-West trade. I don't want there to sound blithely kind of uh, dismissive of the problem because the UK agreed to Northern Ireland remaining in the single market for goods as the fundamental of the protocol solution. Did they not know what they were doing then? I, I would have thought that David Frost, who knows a bit about the single market, did know what he agreed, whether he uh, deluded himself as to what would happen next or deluded his boss as to what would happen next, goodness knows. But I think he knows enough about the single market to know what he'd agreed to. And he knew that there was a border in the Irish Sea, even if Johnson consistently and immediately denied it. There is, of course, a question about what does that border have to look like and how difficult and intrusive could it be? In a world where there was a high level of trust between the two authorities, and as I say, we couldn't be further away from that, do I believe that there are sort of technocratic, bureaucratic solutions on the custom side in particular, a bit more difficult on the SPS stuff, I think, but it's, it's certainly doable on the custom side, where with you know, consistent, um, immediate exchange of information and access to information at the border, you could make uh, the border much more like touch um, and the EU collectively could be more, um, you know, open to taking risks, but, you know, calibrated risks and carefully calculated risks in conjunction with the UK authorities on the operation of the border east-west. Yes, I, I think you could get there, but you would have to have a very high level of trust. And the problem with that is not the bureaucrats and, uh, and above all, I think not the bureaucrats in Northern Ireland, uh, probably not the bureaucrats in the UK either. The problem is at the political level, which is that the political instruction has gone out that that's not what we want to do. So can you get through that? Now, the difficulty is this has gone so far that as we're seeing for the DUP and all you guys on this call will know far better than me. I mean, obviously keep as closely in touch with the debate in Northern Ireland as I as I can from this distance, has it become a question of sort of identity and um, sovereignty and governance and the sheer unacceptability of remaining in the single market for goods? I've asked that occasionally and never got a straight answer, even from senior UK officials. I've said to them, look, you agreed to a solution and you knew you'd agreed to a solution where, which was based on Northern Ireland remaining in the single market for goods. That has consequences on ECJ jurisdiction. That has consequences on which set of rules you follow. That has consequences that when the rest of Great Britain diverges, Northern Ireland doesn't diverge. You knew all that. And then you get quite guilty looks and no straight response. So you say to them, 
have you changed your mind, basically? Uh, because if you're really saying that's no longer a palatable answer, well, then you are ripping up the protocol. You're saying the protocol is the wrong answer and we've repented of ever thinking it was the right answer or we, you know, they come up with all, all manner of rather strange stories about what they thought they'd signed up to. But you're basically saying the protocol type solution is no longer a solution which is palatable to us because in sovereignty, governance and indivisibility terms, it's not acceptable. Well, if that's where we are, I'm very pessimistic because I just don't see the EU27, you know, reopening another negotiation um, on a different text. What I could see the EU doing, and I would hope it did do, um, is saying, look, there are an awful lot of things that could be done within the existing protocol text in terms of refining and uh, the implementation of this in a way which makes it much less onerous on east-west trade and solves all your problems. We did that on medicines. I think you've got to go much further than medicines, but they set the example on medicines after all of changing their own legislation in order to facilitate it. Could the EU make a much more forward offer to an incoming prime minister, you know, albeit well judged and at the right time and only after good faith and trust had been built, which said, look, we can deal with a lot of these problems. And but we need to know from you, are you in earnest about a negotiated solution rather than imposing a non-negotiated solution? And we need to know from the DUP and others that if we did all these things, they would actually stick on the ground. That's a long answer, which doesn't give you an answer, I think. But I mean, you know, is this a set of technocratic, technical, you know, customs, SPS things which could be done, which would radically change the feel of the protocols implementation on the ground? That's intrinsically soluble. If it's a governance indivisibility, we are being sucked away from the rest of the United Kingdom. We're being deliberately sort of submerged in a, in a wider thing and we're losing our identity. Then I'm pretty pessimistic about whether it's soluble. You raised the issue of the, the medicines case, which clearly could have, could have been a real health problem and I, as well as a, a PR disaster for, for, for the EU side on this. Did you get any or have you got any impression from other member states of pushback? Because it's a pretty big deal what, what happened there. It had to be done, but it, it is a pretty big deal. And, you know, you mentioned it possibly being a model. I just instinctively having worked in DG involved in a, in a, in a, in a European Commission negotiation, there, there's just this allergy to making exceptions. Um, there is, I'm afraid. There is, I'm, well, I say I'm afraid. I mean, I totally understand the culture and I understand why there's an allergy to doing so. And people are looking at what precedent that creates for kind of other partners. And that's not always visible to the British or visible to the Swiss or whatever. So I understand the allergy. I do think Northern Ireland is different from anywhere else on earth. And therefore, it's worth thinking about things which don't constitute a precedent for elsewhere, but which have to be done in this environment. Um, if there were high levels of trust, you know, as I say, you know, could you get there and take it? To, my impression is that member states were a bit reluctant and thought that Sefcovic might have gone too far, even in his October package, but swallowed it. Right. The difficulty is he couldn't he couldn't conceivably I mean, he doesn't want to now, but he couldn't conceivably go back now to the council and say, you know, I need to do X and Y and Z further which, you know, really changes the terms of how this protocol is implemented, because they'd, they'd all think he'd gone mad. So you can only get to the point where the Commission really starts to push the member states, and above all, of course, the, you know, the French, I suspect, but not solely the French. He's only, the Commission negotiator is only in a position to do that if he can say, look, I've had some very good conversations with opposite numbers. I really think there's terrain here where if we push the envelope a bit, and we were really quite uh, prepared to do some quite radical things within the terms of the protocol text. It would be worth us doing them. Um, I think he'd have a fight with some of the member states, but ultimately I think the bulk of the member states don't massively care and they'll go with the commission's judgment if the commission thinks it's a serious runner and has reason to believe from talking to UK authorities and to Northern Ireland unionists that it could run. You, you, you gave a really interesting speech a month ago in Florence, um, which, which made some suggestions in terms of the way forward, um, in terms of focusing on the positives such as UK cooperation uh, against Russian aggression and recognizing that our collective security is a core mutual interest. You, you also spoke about the need to recognize how much the policymaking context has changed globally saying that in a range of policy areas, security, resilience, and value issues will increasingly trump economic efficiency ones. Now that has, that's sort of for a very for a small globalized economy like Ireland, that, 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 that can sound pretty scary. Would, would you just elaborate a bit on that? 
Yeah, let me try and elaborate a bit on both. I mean, I, I my main advice, uh, consistent with virtually everything I've seen in my career inside the European Union and outside it from the kind of British end, is try and avoid uh, religious debates and institutional debates and try and build pragmatically on cooperation where things are going reasonably well with the British. Not much is going reasonably well with the British, but um, some stuff around Ukraine. I wouldn't want to overstate it even on sanctions, where I think you know the EU is probably finding it easier to cooperate with the US than it is with the UK. But nevertheless, things are happening within a G7 and G7 plus format, where there are debates with the Brits, Brits along, and because it's not badged as a debate with the European Union or the European Union institutions, uh, you know, Britain is a pretty cooperative, collaborative player. And as I say, we've played a major role, I think, on the security dimension in Ukraine um, and on supply of weapons and on training Ukrainian troops and all that stuff. And I think the first reassurance the EU should have from that, which was not self-evident even, you know, a few years ago, is that, you know, the UK still really cares about collective European security and is prepared to put its shoulder to the wheel and wants strong relations with Baltic states, Poland, uh, others in the Visegrad and Balkan states, and is prepared to put kind of arms and weaponry on the ground and invest in collective defense. Of course, it wants it all through NATO, it doesn't want anything to do with European defense initiatives. There are huge problems, I suspect, coming down the track on defense procurement and everything else, where there will be a strategic autonomy versus non-strategic autonomy approach, all of that stuff. But the first reassuring thing is the Brits still care about the eastern frontier, so we bloody should. But I mean, you know, that was not necessarily um, self-evident. And that is forcing Britain to think much more seriously about collective European security architecture. I don't think at this stage you can get into debates about an E3. Uh, various people are, you know, proposing those in, and European security architecture with the Brits, the French and the Germans there. There are all manner of complexities to that. Nor do I think there's any point in inviting the Brits along to, um, you know, Foreign Affairs Council or other things, because we won't come and would be deeply uncomfortable with. And I think that would apply incidentally to Labour as well as Conservatives. So build pragmatically on the things where there is real instinct for cooperation and then try and expand that space beyond the space of, you know, sanctions or food security and energy security and see whether gradually that develops a, di a different atmosphere around the rest of the relationship. So I think it's quite modest advice, really. It, it, it may strike people as, you know, excessively so. I've had lots of um, uh, ex or current Remainers or Rejoiners who don't like that um, element of the speech. I totally understand why. I'm just trying to be very pragmatic about where we're going to be over the next five to ten years. Um, so I was just taken by your point that the, the Labour government wouldn't be comfortable sitting in the General Affairs Council, the, the, the General Affairs Council. Um, do you think, you know, looking out 10 years, Labour in government after, you know, full term, the opinion polls, as you mentioned earlier, are, are showing a, an increasing share of the, the electorate see Brexit as a mistake? If that trend, it's not huge, but if that trend continued and the, the, the whole poison went out of it, could, could you envisage in 10 years uh, a, a British government again, you know, sitting uh, with, with EU ministers on, on foreign issues? I think it's very unlikely. Um, and I think it's well worth thinking then about institutional frameworks and options. I think the difficulty is obviously if you're a kind of non-voting member, uh, the sense that you're only being invited to the feast after the fundamental decision has been taken about direction, and that will make any British government uncomfortable. And I've had that discussion with some Labour front benchers who've got exactly and who've got exactly the same neuralgia as Tory counterparts and who had it when I was working for Labour governments, uh, you know, earlier in the century. So I don't think that stuff goes away. Of course, there'd be a different temperature and a different tenor in the relationship and an appetite to go and talk more to European counterparts. But that sensitivity and neuralgia about, but are we only going and talking to th about things which have already been pre-cooked under strategic autonomy is a big problem. So how do you break? Through? It's not easy to break through that because some of the instincts uh, and they won't just be French instincts on how far you can take strategic autonomy and where that goes beyond the defence arena. Uh, and what does it really mean? We can come on to the question of, you know, where is the US and how reliable is the US after after the next election? But the impetus behind that will make any putative British government pretty nervous. I just think that 
on the substance if you can keep away from some of the neuralgic issues. I mean, for example, on, on, the, on the economic side, what I'm trying to say in Florence is there are a lot of issues now which you can't broach in the G20 because it doesn't function anymore because the Russians and Chinese are there and it's not the forum in which you can make progress. You can't really do it all in the G7 either or G7 plus. Say you add, you know, Korea and uh, Australia and New Zealand and maybe, you know, one other to the G7 still doesn't really function. You need something which is the equivalent of the Trade and Tech Council, where some of this business is being done between the EU and US. But the EU and the US are not going to invite the UK in as a third wheel and a difficult third wheel into that partnership. And I don't blame them. Neither side will want to. And the UK would be at the moment institutionally allergic to having a trade and tech council with the EU because it was it would feel that it's been constrained and beaten up by Big Brother. Now, even with the Americans there, people in Whitehall is you still need these discussions with both EU and US. You've got to find a forum which works for you guys, which you're not neurologic about because there are a whole load of discussions about, you know, data and uh, AI and, you know, 5G or 6G and multiple, mul multiple things which the UK wants to be part of a global discussion in the Western world or in the kind of democratic world about, but you don't want to be in a room solely with the European Union about because you're fearful of being beaten up by Big Brother and constrained in what you do. So you are going to have to think about my point about globalization you mentioned earlier is globalization 1.0 does seem to me to be increasingly over. It's good that we made some serious progress at the WTO ministerial on preventing the WTO falling over. So what it did on fisheries, what it did on vaccines was good. But the idea that you can do big multilateral trade deals in the WTO probably has been dead for 20 years, but it's certainly dead now. There's going to be more and more of an American appetite to have, you know, coalitions with other democratic states in the name of resilience and democracy. Some of that is around G7 and G7 plus. Um, some of that is around trade and tech council. Some of it is around hub and spoke, basically organized around American interests. But I think the EU and UK both have to think about this. And the problem with the Frostian view, if I can put it like that, of the, the UK, uh, a very thin FTA, is a load of things that we ought to be discussing seriously across the channel, we're not even discussing. And somehow we have to get to that point. Now, could you get to that point with the Labour government? I think over time you might be able to, that Labour would still have to say, we're in no way constrained, and, you know, our sovereignty isn't impinged on, but we find this an incredibly valuable dialogue where we can deepen our cooperation in those areas where we have a sovereign will to deepen our cooperation. You know, it would still have to be dressed up in very sovereignist ways. And yeah, that poses well, some problems for the EU as well on its strategic autonomy. Why should we be discussing this at all with the Brits before we've decided a, a general European Union position? What you, you mentioned the sovereignist thing being dressed up by the Labour Party. Is it something, you know, people on the left tend to be more internationalist, less, less, less concerned about sovereignty issues, in, I think it's fair to say in general. But just, just your analysis of the British Labour Party as it is now, is there a sovereignist wing or type of thinking? Or is it a case that they feel they need to dress it up because of the dynamic on, on the sort of right of the political spectrum? I think the sort of centre-right and the Starmerite sort of centre-right of the Labour Party is relatively internationalist, but in a way which sounds quite sovereigntist by all European standards, if I can put it like that. I don't think a lot of this has changed. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier on, I, I, I'd listened to Ken Clark recently give a, you know, a kind of a wonderful lecture, which went right back to the European Communities Act, where he was a junior working for Ted Heath in 1972. And he described the experience of working with the then, the then Jenkinsites in the Labour Party to get that legislation through against the Benites, the Footites and the left of the Labour Party and against Enoch Powell and others on the right of his own party. And he said rather, rather touchingly, really, 50 years on, we're in much the same mode. Uh, you know, my side of the Conservative Party, as he said, have basically lost kind of uh, most of the major battles, if not all the major battles. Uh, and the ones that Ted Heath thought were important, ones that Margaret Thatcher actually, for much of her time in the 1980s, thought were important. But the coalition then in the centre of politics, centre-right and centre-left, were much closer together than centre-left was to the left and centre-right was to the right. 
Now, obviously, the Conservative Party has evolved in a much more populist, nationalist, anti-big business, sovereigntist direction, and those people, by and large, dominate the party. I don't think that's going to change. Look at look at the people who are emerging now into the debate. You know, the Kemi Badenox and uh, and Suella Bravamans and others were around in this debate. That doesn't seem to me to be likely to go into reverse anytime soon. Labour has gone more you know, back post-Corbyn to a kind of social democratic, more internationalist tradition. But there's always a big strand of the Labour Party, which is quite sovereigntist. You know, I worked for, you know, Gordon Brown, you know, for many years in the Treasury. And there was plenty of that working for Gordon. And Gordon was an internationalist and profoundly believed in kind of global institutions and was a, had a big international finance agenda. But it was very much not a supranationalist agenda and not very close to what other European Social Democrats were on. So I think there could be a strand of stronger internationalism where Britain wants to take a much bigger global role and, and take more initiatives. I suppose my advice would be, I, I can see that still being very branded as kind of British initiatives, intergovernmental initiatives, and people still being anything but relaxed about being too subordinated to European institutions. This may be un, this may be undeliverable. It may be extremely naive. I think it is in many ways naive about how our quarter of the world works. But I, I just think you know I don't see that changing very radically under Labour. And just to finish on on a dynamic in in Ireland's UK relations and bilaterally, clearly very very challenging uh, time. Yeah. But you, you know you mentioned the the rise of the sort of sovereigntist nationalistic element. Um, here in Ireland, Sinn Féin is, the, is now uh, looks set to be the, the next part, the next uh, main party in government. Um, how do you think the dynamic with the Taoiseach Mary Lou Macdonald and, uh, say, Prime Minister Liz Truss, both uh, openly and proudly nationalistic, um, what, how, what sort of dynamic could you see them living with each other? Do you see, you know, like-minded people can sometimes see each other's perspectives better? Uh, could it improve? Could it get worse? Any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it's a very difficult question. I mean, it's very bad at the moment, as you say, which is, you know, very disconcerting and disturbing for people of kind of my generation, because whatever you think of successive UK prime ministers, um, from John Major to Theresa May, I think they all care deeply about the peace process, probably spent more time, certainly in the case of John Major, uh, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron probably spent more time on Irish questions broadly, broadly put than on any other foreign policy question and didn't view it as a foreign policy question. And although Theresa May didn't start there and started, in my view, quite ignorant of what she was facing, um, you know, it was obviously part of the problem at the end of 2016. Whatever you think of her, she in the end thought that her main duty was as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and she had to find a resolution which worked for the entire United Kingdom. And therefore, the positioning on Northern Ireland, to some degree, dictated the version of Brexit, which she tried to come up with. Uh, so I think you had five successive UK Prime Ministers, and you had also an underpinning of the bureaucracy of people who really spent a lot of time thinking about Dublin and spent a lot of time thinking about Northern Ireland. And I think a lot of that is gone. I mean, I don't want to be to too unfair. Of course, there are people like John Bew around in number 10 who, are, you know, understand a lot and, um, and I hope manage to relay it, at least some of it to, uh, to their bosses. But I think the bureaucrat there's been a significant bureaucratic falling off and bureaucratic decline and Mandarin decline in understanding. And at the political level, there hasn't been much appetite to have any understanding. And I think the kind of stuff that you've heard from David Frost, Brandon Lewis, uh, and others about the Good Friday Agreement has been pretty grim, really. Um, I think I'm being uh, euphemistic. Uh, you know, I don't think these guys actually particularly understood what was in the Good Friday Agreement. I, I question whether any of them had read it, but they certainly were not imbued with the knowledge of how we got there, and they hadn't lived it. Um, and I think they always saw the Irish border question as a deep constraint on what they really wanted, which was a kind of mid-Atlantic and divergent Brexit. And therefore it was an irritant. And there you came up with kind of idiotic ideas like alternative arrangements and thought you could essentially impose those on the Irish or on the European Union. And even when I was there in late 2016, I think I've said this at previous sessions, 
the message to me, um, and I was deeply unpopular in pushing back against it, was essentially we could bilateralize the negotiation with Ireland, keep the European Union out of it. And because we were the kind of bigger player, we would beat up Dublin uh, and bend it to our will. And I said, well, that's simply not how the negotiation going to unfold. This is an Article 50 negotiation and the Irish question will be central to the Article 50 uh, negotiation and the member states will back Dublin um, against London every time and right to the end. And I don't think anybody believed me. So I think there has therefore been a sort of deterioration in the relationship, which has been a long time coming and has now carried on for six years. Now, maybe you do have to reach the point where the kind of ultra radicals are in office on both sides and at least there's an understanding of sort of relative nationalist perspectives and somehow you sort of rebuild from that base and you sort of put more dynamism into the bilateral relationship. But the trouble is everything is soured by the experience of the last few years and the history of the last few years and the protocol. So you've got somehow to get beyond the protocol dispute because if that's the only fault line and we keep on going round and round that circle and the Brits conclude the only thing to do is go completely unilateralist and impose our solution then you know it's quite difficult to see where the bottom is. As always Ivan it is uh, it's always as fascinating as it is usually sobering uh, to, to discuss these matters with you and uh, I suppose this is now it's, it's become commonplace to say that we hope to have you back in person but uh, it, it, at this stage I think it, Usually it's um, during the summer that you, you address us on an almost annual basis. So maybe this time next well, I, I, year. I'd love to and, and to and to try and finish on one optimistic note. Look, I mean, some you, we've got to make a serious effort in September. It's got to be in September with a new prime minister to say this doesn't have to carry on deteriorating from here. And so far, it's been a constant process of deterioration. And we have to face reality about how do we put a halt to that? How do we stabilise the relationship? Obviously, above all on the Northern Ireland and the border question, but it's a much broader question than that. And, you know, can one inject that sense so that at least this side of a general election, we don't carry on getting worse? Now, there's a risk. I, I, I've, I've not been, I've been very open about the risk that it actually, in the view of a Conservative Prime Minister and Cabinet, plays to their advantage that the relationship carries on deteriorating they wrap themselves in the flag and they say only we are able to stand up for Britain and willing to stand up for Britain and the opposition would take you back into alignment, which is servitude. There is a risk that that's where we're going anyway, but I don't think we should be too fatalist on it. And I do think both Dublin and Brussels and key capitals have really got to focus very, very early on with a new prime minister. Ivan, many thanks. Great. It's been, uh, as I say, uh, great to have you and uh, have a good rest of the day. And thanks for everyone who's joined us. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.